0: God Network News where we give you a new perspective on events happening in our world today. This is GNN.
1: This is God Network News, episode 46.
2: This podcast is proudly listed at podcastpickle.com.
1: In this episode of GNN, uh, we will be continuing with our reading of chapters from the new book, There's a Sheep in My Bathtub. And I hope that you're enjoying listening to these chapters. And again, this is our gift to you, our faithful listeners, as a free audio book to you of this really Fantastic! really exciting, new, and innovative book that has come out by Brian Hogan. And again, in the show notes, you can find a hot link to where you can get your own hard copy of that if you wish.
2: There's a sheep in my bathtub. Chapter 16, Downpour. We were in the middle of an outpouring. So much began to happen that I can't narrate all God was doing in Airdenet. Let me just open my journal at some spots to give you a picture. Brian's Log Sunday, May 1st, 1994 Yesterday the entire leadership of the church fasted and met for a day of prayer and teaching. All 24 were filled with the Holy Spirit and all except two spoken tongues, most of them for the first time. Other gifts experienced were prophecy, interpretation of tongues, and word of knowledge. Several leaders had visions, and two were set free from demons. Demonic oppression is widespread here. We are barely beginning to treat a huge spiritual wound. Today is May Day. A few years back, everyone in Airdenet would celebrate the glory of eternal communism on this holiday. Not so this year. This year, the living God led a celebration of His eternal kingdom. During the celebration gathering, Zorigo taught on the Holy Spirit's power, and about 30 responded to the message of salvation. Many were healed, including a nearly blind girl who started to see clearly. Kidney disease and headaches also had to flee at the name of Jesus. All 15 of the newly water-baptized were baptized in the Spirit as we prayed for them on stage. Many of them spoke in tongues and had visions, and one prophesied. Some people have also been healed when church members have visited them in their homes. God's Spirit obviously didn't leave on the train with the Russian team. Sunday, May 8th, 1994 Today in house church, the teaching was on God's Holy Spirit. Then, during the prayer time, He showed up. The first group all fell to the ground under His power. I taught a little about the various workings of God and warned against putting Him in a box. Then we had a second group of five get prayer. I was told the boy that I was praying over was partially blind. I asked him what he wanted from God, and he replied, My sight. So that's what I prayed. I really sensed the Lord's love for this boy, and I just confessed to God, without him showing up, nothing could happen. After praying, I asked the boy about his sight, and he looked about, grinned, and declared it healed. The church was very encouraged, as everyone knew this boy and his problem. In the third group to receive prayer, there was a young woman in a yellow jacket. I noticed nothing was happening as we prayed for her. I asked God why, and I received slavery in reply. As I pondered this, it came to me that she was wearing a necklace charm from an idol. I looked at her neck and could see nothing. I asked Ghana, who speaks English, to ask if anyone had such a thing on their neck. I didn't want to embarrass the girl, in case I proved to have heard wrong. As soon as the announcement was made, this girl, who'd already sat down, stood up and pulled out her necklace. It was a small leather pouch containing fetishes prescribed by the lamas. The church cheered. They were applauding God for knowing such secret things." We decided to pray for her again and had her stomp on the fetish while we prayed for complete freedom. After the group finished praying, several leaders assisted her in burning the necklace. Wednesday, May 17, 1994 Today I will teach the first lesson to the leaders of the first Russian house group. On Sunday, we met with the Russian believers to divide them into house churches. Enough attended our meeting for two small gatherings, but they preferred to meet as one at first and divide as necessary. There's a nervousness left over from Soviet days that has left them apprehensive about small groups and being labeled a sect. While there were about 50 who claimed interest in being part of the church, only 14 attended the organizational meeting. So today I will meet with four helpers, who will be future leaders, and teach through Ghana, a Mongolian-English-Russian translator, a simple lesson on obedience to Jesus' seven basic commands. We needed to baptize the Russian believers quickly because it has been our practice to serve the Lord's Supper to baptized believers only. In the beginning, lacking Russian worship songs, it's best to center our worship service on communion. It is so easy to feel overwhelmed at this new and unexpected responsibility, but God is giving me strength. Magnus is so busy with the Mongolian church and preparing to leave for Sweden for the whole summer that the Russians are pretty much all mine at this point. Over the summer, I will be overseeing and assisting both churches, Russian and Mongolian. I praise God that he's raised up wonderful godly elders to be for the Mongolian church. In Mongolian, we use a really common word for these leaders, akhlaj, which just means older brothers, with connotations of leadership. A close match to what Paul called his church leaders, and without 17 centuries of ecclesiastical baggage piled on top. Our last baptism ceremony was memorable. Our middle daughter, Molly Ann, was baptized. She told Louise one morning she wanted to get saved and follow Jesus. Louise asked her what that meant, and she said, "'I'll praise God and do what he says.'" Amen. Molly is the first Westerner baptized into the Mongolian church. In Erdnet, we continue to baptize in bathtubs. It's not easy. The bathrooms are minuscule. But what can we do? This isn't the first time we've had sheep in our bathtub. The authorities won't even consider our request to rent the municipal pool and only Russians are allowed to use the spa and plunge pool at the mine. So, we gather all those desiring baptism into an apartment, along with their house groups and leaders. We worship in the living room while first women, then men, line up in the hall. An elder-to-be and the house church leader, whose member is receiving baptism, stand next to the tub in the tiny bathroom. The person sits down in the full bathtub and is first laid back into the water by one elder, then the other pushes the baptizee's knees underwater which acts as a spring lever, causing the person's upper body to rise up out of the water. Then they get out and change clothes in the bedroom while the next in line enters the family of God. The tub is drained and refilled after every third or fourth person. All the while, the church worships in the living room. It's not ideal, but it works. Bayada and I baptized Molly. That same day, fifteen Mongolians were baptized, including five men and a married couple whose little boy was healed last month. For the first time, many of those baptized were over twenty years old. One teacher was about forty-five. God is answering our prayers for older people to come to faith. All told, we have now baptized hundred and forty-nine. Eleven of them have moved away from Airdenet. Thirty-five are still here, but we never see them. We take this seriously, but we don't get distraught over it. We have to go on, although we constantly evaluate the way we accept people for baptism. To address this, we've started a New Believers course. For four evenings, we cover the bare basics of God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the Christian life. Interested people attend these evenings in any order before they are invited to give their lives to Christ. Rather than delay baptism or treat it as a graduation exercise, we are delaying conversion until the people have a clear idea of what they are joining The feedback we received from our backsliders was that they were merely interested, were baptized, and stopped coming when they learned enough to realize there was a significant cost to following Christ. We hope more communication up front will address this problem. Their ignorance of Christianity and Christ is staggering, and we have to remind ourselves there is no Christian background here at all. Over 200 came to the last celebration service where all the house churches meet for corporate worship, dramas, prayer, and sharing of the word. The Sunday school has around 150 kids, and the youth meeting about 60 people, many of whom are baptized. Of the baptized believers, almost exactly one-fourth are male, and about one-third over 22 years of age. Almost all of these guys and older folks are new since the Holy Spirit was poured out in April. In response to requests from other Mongolian churches desiring to move away from the standard Big Sunday Meeting format and into house churches, we are planning a seminar in Ulaanbaatar. Our three elders-to-be will teach and share experiences, and we have invited leaders from six provinces where there are churches or groups that are interested. Saturday, June 18, 1994 The lapse of time since the last entry gives some idea how busy things have been here lately. The day before yesterday, Louise and I celebrated our tenth wedding anniversary by going on a date to the restaurant at Erdnets Seleng Hotel. The only item on the menu that was actually in stock was mutton stew. We laughed and tried to remember how we'd celebrated each of our previous anniversaries. Yesterday, Magnus and Maria left for Sweden on the train. We were sad to see them go. We also waved goodbye to one of my Russian church helpers, Ludmilla, who is visiting family for the summer. We had five visitors up from Ulaanbaatar on this crazy day, too, four Mongolian Enterprises International co-workers and a navigator's guy. Monday is my last English class for the summer and the beginning of all the leadership meetings I will be helping with in the Mongolian church. The Russian church held their first baptism last Sunday with Anna, Albert, Lydia, Eugenia, tamara luda and ludmila entering the family these are to our knowledge the first russian believers ever baptized in mongolia our russian church is small but vital erdinets russians typically summer in mother russia so in the fall many more will attend we are concentrating on getting the essentials of obedience to christ into these 10 sheep so that when more come we will have a prepared corps the Mongolian church is facing a busy summer. Our summer program in July will be our first alone. Last year, we shared a program with a church from Ulaanbaatar. We also have baptisms, celebrations, world prayer day, for which we've rented the outdoor stadium, all church prayer meetings, short-term teams from the states, and many leadership trainings and meetings planned. Looking back on this unexpected and all-important outpouring of grace, we can see so many small almost unnoticed things that God carefully orchestrated to prepare the ground for the waterfall of wonders that was on its way. It really wasn't as sudden as it seemed at the time to those of us caught up in the middle of it. Our shift to a more indigenous biblical terminology had really occurred in many smaller steps. Early on, Bayada had translated Genesis from an inner Mongolian source that used Borchon. And though we changed it to the then more acceptable Yurtin Sinitsin, we put a disclaimer on page one explaining both terms. We adopted the Red Bible as soon as it was available, talked, prayed, discussed, met, evaluated, and made adjustments in what we were doing and teaching, and finally we decided to change God's name. The father was hard at work for many months so the Mongolians would respond to the healings, gifts and deliverance he caused to burst forth with the April clouds. There's a Sheep in My Bathtub Chapter 17 Alone at the Helm When summer finally arrived, our team paused from the frantic activity into which Miracle April had plunged us. On June 17, 1994, Magnus and Maria left Airdenet to take their first break home. When almost the entire church turned out on the railway platform to see our team's leaders off for their extended time in Sweden, we were, without realizing it, setting a pattern that would be followed whenever a missionary left Airdenet. We had a worship service right next to the train as all of the other travelers and their families and friends looked on with jaws agape. No one in Mongolia had ever seen anything like this large crowd of crying and smiling Mongolians singing about God and hugging a blonde foreign couple, all accompanied by guitar. It was quite a scene. With Magnus and Maria gone, Louise and I were now alone and in charge until the summer's end. Reality quickly set in. Sitting in our kitchen that evening, Louise and I prayed for my mother, who was celebrating her retirement that day on the other side of the world. We felt incredibly far away, isolated and vulnerable. We were eagerly counting the days to my mom and stepdad's visit in August. For the next three months, we would be the only church planters for hundreds of kilometers. We had a quickly growing Mongolian church movement on our hands and were barely conversational in the language, and a Russian group that I could only lead through a Mongolian translator who spoke all three languages. As I met with various leaders for training and discipleship, I realized how much I'd leaned on Magnus' linguistic proficiency in the past. With no other English speakers around us, our language skills quickly improved. We prepared house church group lessons, met with elders-to-be, led the house church leaders' meetings, and dealt with problems as they came up. The Russian congregation held its first baptism service at a sauna for miners up at the edge of the second-largest open-pit mine in all of Asia. There was a small plunge pool outside the hot room. Alex, the only man being baptized, arranged for the facility and had thoughtfully filled the pool with hot water. I have nothing against comfort and I'm rarely accused of being traditional, but I felt compelled to insist he drain and refill it with more tepid water. It just wouldn't seem like baptism otherwise. While he was fixing the pool, the ladies were changing. When they came out, I was shocked. They were in their underwear. Not one had brought any bathing suit or clothes in which they could get wet. I told them they had to cover up. They seemed puzzled by my prudery, but compliantly trooped back to the dressing room. When they emerged again, Alex, Ghana, and I were stunned to see an apparition, six Roman matrons in full toga. They'd found bed sheets. The baptism immediately took on what I imagined to be a decidedly New Testament flavor— on the way to the mine I had tried to memorize the Russian words I would say as I baptized each new believer. Yak Vas Voimya Otsa Isina Isvetova Duka. For some reason I developed a mental block and was unable to repeat the whole thing without cheating, and looking at the scrap of paper I jotted it down upon. As I baptized the first toga clad lady, I blanked and looked around for my crib notes just as a wavelet washed them right off the edge of the pool everyone had a good laugh and helped by whispering the next words whenever i got stuck it really was a significant time for the russian church and for me it was my first missionary baptism and my first multiple baptism yesusin cholgan or jesus assembly the name the church in Airdenet had settled on, was having its first summer program in 1994, and it turned out to be both wildly successful and terribly trying. The year before, a group of our people had joined an Ulaanbaatar church for their retreat and enjoyed it enough to plan one for us. Our leadership contracted a former Russian youth camp about 60 kilometers northeast of Airdenet in the spacious and green Seleng River Valley. The leadership of our church had been busy planning a week of teaching, games, recreation, fellowship, and fun. We didn't need to worry about food provisions or preparation since that was part of what we were paying the camp to provide. We were assured the dining hall and the kitchen were staffed and ready for our group of 80. When the hired trucks dropped us off, we were stunned by the natural beauty of the landscape. Unfortunately... We weren't the only ones who found the setting irresistible. As soon as our truck stopped moving, clouds of bloodthirsty mosquitoes filled the air around us. The camp itself was somewhat run down, yet beguilingly whimsical in its construction. There were actual planes and tanks for the children to play on, and even though decay had begun to set in, facilities which were nicer than most. The building where our family stayed was built to look like a ship on land. We had a private room with windows, unlike the rest of our group, which made do with cabins. We kept them closed all night, choosing the considerable heat over the involuntary blood donations to the local insects. Privately, we thought the food was terrible, but we put a good face on things and tried to clean our plates. The kitchen had apparently hit the mother load of a sale on tripe. The main course at every meal was cow stomach. The church folks kept encouraging us to take advantage of the special meals the camp staff were always offering to us. Like good missionaries, though, we insisted on being treated just like everyone else. Melody, Molly, and Alice chose to fast for the week, eating mostly yogurt and bread. The yogurt was served daily as a snack at two o'clock in the afternoon. Our leadership was upset with this camp custom, but apparently unable to get the staff to change the time. The problem was... Mongolians consider yogurt to be the equivalent of a powerful sleeping pill. They were convinced that the camp was trying to ruin the afternoon teaching sessions by putting our group to sleep. It really did seem to have that effect on Mongolians. My family, however, relished the daily yogurt breaks. So, what was so wonderful about this week at Camp Torture? Our church family... We grew so close to our Mongolian brothers and sisters. I taught every day, but the best lesson was one Louise and I did together. The older folks and parents had asked us to do a biblical question and answer period with them. We ended up talking for three hours, and we all had a marvelous time. It was so satisfying to answer questions from God's word and have 15 people simultaneously gasp, "I'm How frighteningly good it is as they understood an eternal truth for the first time. This was what I always knew mission was really about. We also had glorious times of worship and some fun new dramas from the drama team. For recreation, we had six tournaments, chess, soccer, volleyball, basketball, drama, and balloon tossing. My team won in soccer and basketball. Normally, I have an aversion to sports, but my lofty six-foot-four inches in a nation of vertically challenged people quickly made basketball my favorite game. Louise's drama team won that competition. Melody won an uncontested toad-collecting award. When the week was over, we were all tired, hungry, and happy. We would miss the close fellowship and closeness of living together as a church, but we were ready to return to the relative comfort of Airdenet. One of our trucks ran out of gas on the way home and half of the church was stuck in the middle of nowhere until 2 a.m. when they finally arrived home on foot. Several days after family camp, I overheard the leaders talking about lousy food. I asked what food they were referring to. The camps, of course, they responded. It turns out everyone agreed the food was the worst they had ever eaten in their lives, and they couldn't understand why we insisted on eating it when something better was being offered. We all had a great laugh about this mix-up. In the beginning, the believers in Airdenet had only met in small groups in living rooms, As the numbers of these groups increased, it became both attractive and feasible to gather them together periodically in a larger congregational meeting we termed a celebration, but usually just called big meeting. We would rent a hall once a month on a Sunday and announce to the house groups where and when the celebration would be. We were forced to change the venue fairly often as the government owned all of the buildings and would hound us out of whichever we were using once they realized they were renting to Christians. It was a benign form of persecution, hardly deserving the name when compared to what followers of Christ endure in many countries. Besides, it didn't affect us very much because church was happening in apartments all over the city, and the big meetings were not essential. On a number of occasions, our landlord evicted us as we were setting up for a celebration service, and we merely posted a leader out front to let everybody know that the meeting was canceled. The life and ministry of the body of Christ went on with hardly a ripple. As time went on, the elders-to-be came to Magnus and me and asked for more frequent big meetings. They reasoned that everyone enjoyed getting together for corporate worship, dramas, and testimonies, and they found seeing the growing numbers of believers very encouraging. They also pointed out that the people were giving generously in accordance with the command of Jesus they'd been taught, and there was enough money coming in to rent a hall more often. We gave our consent, and the celebration was increased to every other Sunday. This worked very well, and the excitement level rose proportionately. Eventually, there were enough funds coming in to rent a place every Sunday, and we could tell everyone liked the large gathering, even though it took far more energy and resources to pull off than a house group. The house churches continued in the weekdays, and the big meeting became our regular Sunday event. After a couple months, however, we noticed something was wrong. We were meeting with the house group leaders in the regular training meeting, and they were taking turns sharing statistics on their groups to give us all an idea how things were going. A puzzling and disturbing trend began to emerge as we looked at the data. The house churches had stopped growing, and worse still, had stopped multiplying. They weren't shrinking. But all had basically hit a plateau. The big celebration meeting continued to grow every Sunday, though. The more we questioned the leaders, the more it became clear. Believers older in faith continued in the small house groups, but the new people were choosing the celebration as their connection with the church. No matter how much we consistently stressed participation in the house groups as the only way to be a real part of the body, we were giving out a stronger contradictory message every Sunday morning. Since 90% of our time, energy, and money went into just three or four hours on Sunday mornings, the new believers assumed that this was our main event, despite our protestations to the contrary. It was certainly easier to come and be a part of an audience than to enter a home and be discipled by those who knew you well as you learned to become an active participant, the king and priest of Revelations 1.6. The Mongolian leaders and I were horrified. As we prayed about what to do, we kept circling around a solution none of us wanted, but that eventually proved to be the only way to get our church back on God's track. We came to the painful decision to cancel the Sunday celebrations. The next Sunday morning, after the testimony, worship, dramas, and sharing of God's word, we had all of the house church leaders stand around the outside of the movie theater auditorium we were renting. We announced that this was our last big gathering for the foreseeable future, and anyone who considered themselves a part of the body would need to be involved in a house church, as this was the only expression available from now on. The leaders were arranged by district, and we pointed them out geographically. We asked everyone to walk over to the leader whose group was closest to their home. Almost everyone did. Then the leaders took down their names and told them where and when the next gathering was taking place. And that was it. The fruit of this drastic action was dramatic. Within a couple weeks, all of the groups needed to multiply as they were all too big. The new believers were being taught to obey Jesus at last, and new life flushed through the arteries of the body. After a couple of months, we resumed celebration meeting just once a month, and it was good. I wish I could tell you we'd learned our lessons, and everything went well from this point forward. But I can't. We eventually slid from monthly to bimonthly celebrations. These gatherings were so popular and fun, we once again tried to have them every Sunday. The same story played out again with similar results. The house churches were just not sustainable at the center of the church's life when the big meetings were weekly. We never did find a solution that pleased everyone on this issue. It seemed that we were always experimenting with celebration frequency. Once a month? Twice a month? Or every week. Years later, at a house church seminar in England, I found my answer to this dilemma. A pastor asked the presenter, Tony Dale, how often the big meetings should be. My attention was riveted. This was our big, burning question. The answer completely surprised me. It was one that had never even crossed our minds. Tony answered with a question. When did the New Testament house churches gather for larger citywide or regional gatherings? Tony had to provide the answer because no one else in the crowded room of church planters and leaders could come up with the answer. When they had a reason to gather the house churches together, like when the Apostle Paul would visit. And just like that, I had the answer that we had sought for so long in Erdanet and since. Whenever there was a real reason, visiting apostles, prophets, teachers, a worship group, testimonies about miracles... We could gather all the churches in a large celebration. The only excuse to come together which wasn't valid or biblical was the one we'd always prioritized, the calendar. There's a sheep in my bathtub. Chapter 18 Battle with the God of Hell The West is infatuated with the national religion of Mongolia, Tibetan Buddhism. The Dalai Lama is the darling of Western media and winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. Benefit concerts and documentary films are honoring the people of Tibet, the pillars of this religion. Major motion pictures promote Tibetan Buddhism and stars like Richard Gere and Steven Seagal have become its apostles in America. This ancient religion has become the trendy pop faith of the hour. There is an element of trend to the Tibetan Buddhist resurgence in Mongolia, too, but there is more to it than that. Seventy years of the twin religions of scientific atheism and Soviet communism were not able to break the hold of the lamas on the soul of Mongolia. Once again, just as before the 1921 revolution, parents were giving young sons to monasteries to raise as monks, setting up idle shelves in their homes and visiting temples to prostrate themselves repeatedly before gods of metal and wood. When the urn containing Buddha's ashes was brought to Ulaanbaatar from Bihar, India for a viewing, crowds stood for hours just for a glimpse as they filed by. I have found a discrepancy between the Tibetan Buddhism peddled in the West as a peaceful and transcendent religion of meditation and the Buddhism practiced in temples in Nepal, tibet and mongolia tibetan buddhism is one of the world's most openly demonic religions at least in its homelands it puts on more innocent clothes when it goes abroad in Ulaanbaatar, there is a sprawling temple complex located on a low hill that survived the communist era as a museum but is again the tibetan buddhist capital of mongolia when visiting gandan monastery A visit inside the temples gives one quite a different picture than Richard Gere's interpretation. The room is filled with idols. Buddha seems to be a minor player. Pride of Place goes to Yama, the god of death and hell. Images of Yama differ, but certain themes prevail. He is depicted with fangs and a terrifying expression of fierce, leering malevolence. He wears a necklace of severed human heads, a cloak of flayed skin, and is often shown consuming a skull cup of blood. There is often a sexually graphic element in his depictions, whether Yama is alone and visibly aroused by lust, or engaged in graphic coupling with his consort, Chamundi, a naked she-demon. One element that's always present is the bodies of men, women, and animals, even Buddhist lamas, being crushed under the god's feet. Yama is clearly the star of Tibetan Buddhist worship, and torture and terror are the main events. The naive pop version of Tibetan Buddhism in the West keeps a steady stream of world travelers coming to visit the Asian ends of the earth. The typical world traveler is a twenty-something, apparently appreciative of all cultures except their own. European or American, environmentally and politically correct, and dressed either in retro hippie or trekking chic. These folks would regularly end up in Airdenet since it was at the end of the rail line, thinking they had finally reached the back of beyond. The goal is to go someplace not yet polluted by the people from back home. Airdenet fit the bill nicely until they met an American family of five out doing their shopping. They always resented their illusions being broken this way. However, their illusions about the beauty of Mongolian Buddhism were made of tougher stuff. They were able to rationalize or ignore the ugliness they saw in the temples and continue to follow their path to nirvana. Since, in August of 94, Magnus and Maria had returned refreshed from Sweden, our family could take its first trip out of Mongolia in 18 months. We had gone by train to Beijing to meet my parents. Carol and Bud Hadford, my mom and stepdad, had followed the siren song of grandchildren and had been lured into returning with us for a visit to Airdenet. After a year and a half in Mongolia, we were more than ready for a change of scenery, anywhere with fresh vegetables and greens. Everyone's favorite experience was the hotel's breakfast buffet. But since we couldn't eat all the time, we took in at the major tourist sites too, including the Great Wall, On a tour bus, I ended up sitting next to a young French world traveler who began to share with me his trip through this utterly fantastic place, Mongolia. Everything about Mongolia was perfect and flawless. He'd been there for three whole days and would have loved to have stayed longer. Curious as to what he'd seen, I asked him about a few of the places I enjoyed taking visitors. Have you been to Mongolia? he asked incredulously. "'Well, actually, we live there.' I noticed a guarded expression replace the surprise in his face. "'In Erdnet, I added. "'What do you do there?' "'Well, I teach English, develop small business seminars, and I work with a church. I had suspected he wouldn't like this last part, and I wasn't disappointed. You'd have thought I'd claimed to club baby harp seals for a living.' He launched into a loud diatribe against missionaries, drawing the attention of most of our fellow passengers." How can you go in there and destroy that beautiful culture? I can't believe how arrogant you people are. Why do you think you have the right to go and tell them about your religion? They already have a beautiful religion of their own. When he paused for breath, I was ready. So, you were in Mongolia for three days? Did you happen to go into any of the temples? Yes, of course. Beautiful religion. Best on earth. Gorgeous art and architecture. I pressed on. Did you notice the larger-than-life idols in there? Yes, so what? His guard went up even higher. Then you must have seen Yama right up there, front and center. Yeah, he admitted, beginning to see a trap but unable to avoid it. But they are perfectly happy and at peace with their own gods and beautiful religion. I went on to describe the Tibetan god of hell in graphic detail, taking care to get his agreement to my depiction at every step. Then I asked him, Do you think the Mongolians love this god who stomps on them and devours them in every depiction? Or are they just terrified of him? I came to Mongolia to bring good news, not to destroy culture. I tell Mongolians about a god who loved them so much that he allows himself to be trampled underfoot for them so that they would never have to experience hell or its evil god. Mongolians are responding because they know good news when they hear it. They're sick of living in spiritual terror. His face suffused with rage. He spat out at me. Do you think the Mongolians need your Jesus? The Savior's name came out like a curse. I was shooting up a prayer for help responding when the Japanese man sitting in the seat behind us jumped to his feet and shouted, Everybody needs Jesus! I was almost as surprised as the French guy by this unexpected cavalry charge. But I had no time to say anything because this young Japanese brother began excitedly quizzing me. Are you a real missionary? I've always wanted to meet one. I have been learning so much from God's word about all of this. I think God may be calling me to be a missionary. Do you think I could do it? Where could I study for this? I'm on my way home from Bible school in England. I need to plan my next step. Do you have time to counsel me? I glanced over at our world traveler. He was steaming. But what could he say? He had been answered by an Asian from a Buddhist nation who had found something much better, good news about a God who really loved him. The joy radiating off my new Japanese friend was the best answer possible to the charges he'd made. As I shifted my attentions to him with a sigh of relief, I chuckled inwardly. Father, you set that guy up. It certainly wasn't fair to put this fired-up Asian evangelist right behind me to answer that question. You probably had fun arranging all of this. Oh, and thanks. The young Frenchman didn't speak a word for the rest of the bus trip, to the Wall, or on our return. Our family enjoyed the whole day at the Great Wall, fellowshipping with our new little brother from the Land of the Rising Sun. It was an unlooked-for privilege to share with and minister to this ardent and loving Japanese disciple. Days like this made relishing our time away unavoidable, but we longed to be back in Airdenet as well. We were anxious not to miss a thing. Within a year of the church's birth, our decrepit, Russian-built apartment block in Erdenet was already a hotbed of Christian activity. Bayada, the Mongolian believer who'd moved to Erdnet with Magnus and Maria to help plant the church, also lived in our building. The apartment she shared with her sisters served as the meeting place of one of the house groups. Our family began to attend this house church soon after our move to Airdenet. We enjoyed the fellowship and singing, and struggling to understand the teaching was good for language learning. It was great to be a part of such a close-knit and loving group. What none of us knew was that a Buddhist family upstairs was listening to our meetings through the ductwork. A brother and two sisters had been faithfully gathering around the smoke hole in their kitchen every Wednesday night. The acoustics were perfect. The older sister got to know Baeta as they studied together at the university where the Alphonses were English teachers. It wasn't long before Baeta and her sister paid the family a visit and led them to Christ. What an encouragement it was to know people were being drawn to Jesus just by listening to our worship. The group eagerly confirmed their salvation and began to disciple this family. The elder sister, Bolertuya, grew up in Christ quickly. She and her mother evangelized their extended family living in the ger suburbs outside the city. Grandmother, uncles, and aunts, nieces, and nephews all eagerly responded to the gospel. Mongolians trapped in Tibetan Buddhism will typically have an idol shelf at the rear of the gare or at the corner of the living room. This is comprised of a small shelf with a picture or statue of a god, some candles, and offerings of food and money. Bolertuya's family was no exception, and the question of what to do with this altar brought on a small crisis. Our young church had never had to think through a policy about getting rid of idolatrous paraphernalia. Up to this point, we had never experienced the whole family coming to faith, and we never encouraged the young teenage girls to destroy their family idol shelves. Even though idols were in their homes, these items of worship were not theirs to dispose of, but rather belonged to the entire family. But in this situation, with the whole family believing, our advice was that they should rid themselves of it. The family decided to invite a few church leaders over and burn the idol shelf. Almost immediately, one of the new believers in the family fell ill. She happened to be the oldest and most honored member of the family, grandmother. Mongolian society gives grandmothers pride of place in the hierarchy of their mildly matriarchal family structure. Over the next several days, Bolertuya's grandmother's condition worsened until the family began to despair of her life. Relatives living out in the countryside or in distant towns were called and told that this woman wanted them to visit her. In a culture that has a strong taboo against mentioning death, even impending death, this was commonly understood as code for hurry, she's dying. The extended family began to gather and await the inevitable. Bolartuya's other grandmother and her aunt, both devout Buddhists, noticed the missing idol-shelf as soon as they stepped over the threshold. The idol-shelf is the determining geographical space in the Mongolian ger, and its absence must have been glaring. The two ladies' disapproval was obvious, though no mention of the sacrilege was made. As the new believers in the family prayed and discussed the situation, they began to realize that there was a number of other Tibetan worship items in the home. They decided that these two must be consigned to the flames. Later, we heard from Bolartuya the entire household had bravely agreed to the plan. The paraphernalia was taken out into the yard and burned. The family prayed the whole time for God's protection from the evil spirits. Following the bonfire, they prayed for Grandmother. She made an amazing full recovery. Bolartuia and her mother showed up at our place with a number of questions. We began by explaining to them that Satan, the prince of darkness, is the power and authority behind the idols. Their family's conversion, followed by the dismantling and burning of the altar, had enraged the powers of darkness. The attack on grandmother's health that had followed was their attempt to reassert their authority over this family. The forgotten idolatrous items had continued to hold open the door for this kind of spiritual attack. As the good news spread, the whole church was encouraged by this victory over demonic forces they had feared all their lives. Jesus had brought the battle to Yama and his legions as he rescued Mongolian people from a dungeon of terror. There's a sheep in my bathtub. Chapter 19. Gossiping the Gospel We had been trained to expect that cross-cultural evangelism would be one of the first and most difficult hurdles our team would face. I know that many church planning teams working among unreached groups experience much of their struggle just getting the good news across the cultural divide in a bold and effective manner. We were ready for this battle, but it never came. The one church planning task our team did not handle in-house was evangelism. We outsourced this job to overseas Asians. Mongolians have a natural gifting when it comes to sharing their faith. They just can't keep the good news to themselves. After short-term teams of Mongolian believers won a foothold for God in AirdNet, we had watched in amazement as those first converts, not hindered by cultural differences, quickly began to win their friends and neighbors to Christ. In the first year, the teenage girls who formed the early corps won their peers. But through summer and fall of 1994, the gospel spread like a grass fire through all age groups and both genders. Our new believers classes were crowded with many older people getting saved and even some of our shyest and most unassuming members leading their neighbors to Christ. The believers poured out their hearts in prayer for family, neighbors, their countrymen and even other nations in our weekly prayer gatherings and in the house church meetings and those prayers were answered. We church planters were so quickly thrust into discipling the growing band of converts that we never really had to do much evangelism ourselves, at least among Mongolians. But we did look for opportunities anyway, at work, on the long overnight train journeys between Ulaanbaatar and Erdanet, and as we lived out our lives in the community. Indeed, with so many Mongolian believers, it made little sense to cross barriers of language and culture to carry the good news ourselves when we were far more effective training Mongolians to win their own people. We had learned during our training that when locals began sharing the gospel with their neighbors, it was a signal to the church planting team to shift gears and concentrate their energies on discipleship and leadership training. But what is foolish to men is often the wisdom of God. As I recall from my diary, the first day of November 1994 was such a case. Last night my bike was stolen. It was really my own fault. I went to meet two Australians in Airednet on a temporary business assignment. I heard they had some videos they might loan us, and I wanted to surprise Louise, somewhat homebound with the baby due yesterday, and Anne-Marie, the Swedish midwife who had come up from Ulaanbaatar to attend the birth. I parked my bike outside their hotel and neglected to lock it, reasoning I would only be a minute, and we'd never had a theft since leaving the capital city. Upstairs I found the Aussies were out, but a friendly Croatian man invited me into his room. I really like meeting folks from new countries, so I went in. After exchanging pleasantries, I made a fatal mistake. I admitted my ignorance of the underlying issues in his country's war, and asked him to explain. New Life Rule Never ask a native of what was once Yugoslavia to explain the Balkan conflict. Two and a half hours later, I insisted I had to go, and yes, I would come again, but my due-any-time wife might be worried about my unexplained disappearance. It was now 10.30, and Louise was expecting me home at 8 o'clock. I went over to where I'd parked my bike, and it was gone. I started home on foot and met Magnus and a group of our church girls. They were a search party, helping the police to look for me. Apparently, Louise had been a bit concerned. Chagrined, I walked home with them and reported by phone to the police. American found, bike stolen. This morning, I had to get up at 5.30 a.m. for the School of Discipleship meeting at 6 o'clock. After the meeting, Tugi, one of the trainees, asked to borrow my bicycle. A daily occurrence. He and his best friend, Sogo, are our church's hooligans. This word is one of the very few that's the same in English and Mongolian. These two had been the leaders of a fierce gang in Erdnet. At 15 and 16, they already have a feared reputation. About six months ago, they came to faith and were baptized, though they still have numerous rough edges. Fighting, smoking, drinking, loitering, and other hooligan pastimes still seem to be going on in a somewhat diminished way. I am glad that they have never been anything but respectful and kind toward us. This is nice because they live in our building. God led us to accept their applications for the school of discipleship, even though we were forced to make major changes in prayer partner assignments because they had been in fistfights with so many of our other male disciples. After three sessions, we are already seeing real changes. When I told Tugi my bike was stolen last night, he asked for the details, listened carefully, then grunted and stalked away. I saw him talking to Tsogbater, whom we called the Hooligan King, and when I turned back, they were gone. I'd assumed they'd gone home to bed. Forty-five minutes later, I opened my door to find our hooligan disciples grinning, my bicycle in pieces, and two small boys, very frightened, their shirt collars firmly in hooligan hands. They explained that they'd asked around. Apparently their contacts with the underworld are intact, and caught these small thieves taking my bike apart. A few pieces were still missing, as was the ringleader. So they sent one boy named October off to fetch his boss and the missing parts. The other boy, Altansuk, was kept in our living room as a hostage for their return. Since he was sitting there all alone while Tugi and Sogo reassembled my bike in the hall, I began to talk with him. He was 13, small for his age, and quite pathetic. I told him that he, like all the rest of us, was gemte, or with sin. I explained that Borchan, the living God, could not abide sin, and that he and all of us were lost and dying. Using the Bible, I showed him God's solution to his problem. For Borchan so loved the world. It is wonderful how being caught red-handed strips us of our, our excuses. He certainly couldn't deny his need for a savior. When I came to the end of my Mongolian and still wanted to tell him more, God provided one of our church's elders-to-be, Odgedl, to come over and share more with him. I told him I forgave him and invited him to receive Jesus, which he gladly did. He spent the rest of his captivity reading the Bible. He was enthralled. He promised to come to the middle school Bible study I will teach tomorrow. We embraced as new brothers as I sent him off with Tugi and Sogo to find his escaped friends. I told him if they returned with the parts, I would keep their names from the authorities. Otherwise, first thing tomorrow, the names and addresses of those two would be turned in to the police. A few hours later, right in the middle of our team meeting with Magnus, Maria, and Anne-Marie, our Swedish midwife, the two hooligans showed up. They had the missing parts and the felons. October and the ringleader, Amarbat, both aged 14. Magnus and I shared the good news with them. When I expressed my forgiveness and love, those tough, angry eyes suddenly got very moist. When I said the good feeling my forgiveness gave them could be magnified a thousand times with God's total forgiveness, they were really touched. Amarbat asked, Could someone like me come to your meeting to hear about Jesus? It was wonderful to hear Magnus say, Of course, Jesus came for gemte humus, sinners, just like you. They will join their friend at the meeting tomorrow. I can't wait to have my bike stolen again.
0: Like I will never breathe And I'm drowning The bills don't want to leave I hate working But cash I must achieve With snakes lurking No time for my family My soul's hurting This ain't my destiny That's for certain There's nothing but emptiness In the world Only God can fill me up What is love But the temptations are strong I need to pray If you want to change The path you're on Then say I need to wake up I forgot what's important. The- And they're
1: up to no good Cause they
0: lie, steal, hate, cheat I know it, everybody knows it I ask God humbly, make me a servant I ask for mercy, I don't deserve it Cause thoughts I'm a slave to All perverted and cash is my idol I need to change, I'm always chasing That money, that people will kill for That money, there's never enough but misery, that there's nothing but emptiness in the world. Only God can fill me up with his love, but the temptations are strong. I need to pray if you want to change the path you're on. Then say, I need to wake up. I forgot I want to walk now. Just got a new crib I need a bigger one I just got a new job I need a better one I just got 10 G's Already spent it Doing what I gotta do to eat It's all a game As I'm walking down the street Things are the same Same song and the same beat On the radio and misery the TV is nothing but emptiness in the world. Only God can fill me up with his love, but the temptations are strong. I need to pray if you want to change the path you're on. Cause say, wake up, I forgot what's important now. Wake up, cause money ain't everything. Wake up, all I do is drink all day now. Wake up, I gotta do it for my family. Wake up, I forgot what's important now. Wake up.